Hi everyone, welcome to the Morph Report. Quick warning from Blythe. I can't keep my mouth shut about spoilers. This is a known problem that Marina um, keeps making fun of me for. Anyway, I spoil something about the last book in this episode, so uh, yeah. Marina will provide a time code here for spoilers. Yeah, Marina will provide a time code here for the spoiler and <laughs> tell you what to skip. Cool. Yeet. Yerk. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> the timestamps are 13 minutes and 30 seconds to about 14 minutes when Cassandra is talking. Thanks for listening, y'all, and enjoy the episode. Waiting for a break in the rain Waiting for the moment to change your lane I came home from the wasteland Heroic and triumphant like a comic book girl Created out of nothing like a comic book girl Hey! Hi everyone, my name's Cassandra Kelly, I use she-her pronouns and I'm so excited to talk about this journal! Also, my sewing machine is, like, almost fixed, but not all the way. Thank you for that sewing machine update. Also, wow, dang, we are just, all right, good. Yeah, let's do it. Woo! We're just jumping right in. I'm excited. Let's go. Uh, hey, it's Parker, the oldest trick in the book. I use she, her. <laughs> is that your, like, middle name or your, your legendary title? That's my legendary title. Anyway, ignoring the weird nerd stuff that you That's guys That's what's appended to the end of my name in, like, purple text with some right, brackets next to right. it. Yeah. <laughs> who are you? I already introduced. You are the I just only one who hasn't yourself. introduced himself. Has oh yeah. <laughs> See, everything is out of order. I'm so used to. Oh my god. You doing it? This last is Erso Rin. She uses she/her pronouns. My and name she's is Erso Rin. Stop things. stealing the stage from me again. My name is Erso Rin. Uh, I use she/her pronouns, and my fun fact is that. If you skin a grape, it's basically the same thing as a person. I have a summary prepared. <laughs> <laughs> what? what? Alright, never mind. We're not gonna- I have I, a summary. I can't- okay, good, give us the summary. Okay, so this was really hard to write because, like I've said, this is one of my favorite journals. I care about it a lot. Also because this is a really dense journal with a lot of really important details. So, um, sorry in advance for how long this is. Journal 19. Wait, what's the title of Journal 19? I wrote The Departure! I didn't write The Departure, thank you. Okay, so Journal 19, The Departure, starts with the Animorphs in the middle of a fight in which Cassie kills a hork controller after Jake has told them all to retreat. I'm not, I'm not. Disgusted with herself, she decides to quit the Animorphs. So she goes home, like, after quitting, and finds out that her dad's animal rehab clinic has lost its funding, but instead of being upset about that, she just feels numb, which is kind of the problem she's been having with Animorph stuff as well. The Animorphs try to stage an intervention. Um, Marco and Rachel are notably, like, the most obviously upset members. But Cassie remains firm even though she knows that she'll, like, slowly lose their friendship. Jake gets it because he's also been having issues with feeling numb and traumatized. Uh, but he tells her she's not in the club anymore and she can't use her morphing abilities. Also, this whole time, there's an escaped leopard running around. Sure. Because why not? Uh, while doing chores, Cassie rescues a young girl who is exiting the forest pursued by a bear, and they both fall in the river, becoming injured. 
Stop laughing at my Shakespeare joke. Shakespeare! When Cassie comes to, the girl accuses her of being an Andalite bandit. She's been following Cassie, and Cassie tries to play it cool. She considers killing the girl who has a controller, but decides to walk out of the forest with her instead. There is a reference to Hatchet, which is really funny to me because I just reread Hatchet. They're attacked by the leopard, and Cassie has to morph in front of the girl to fight back. Uh, which means the controller now knows not just that she's an Andalite bandit, but that at least one of said bandits is actually human. Because uh, up until now, she had not actually seen Cassie morph in front of her. Then the two of them argue a lot for, like, a, probably a good third of the journal about the morality of war. The Yerk reveals that there are peaceful Yerks who object to imperialism. They also discuss Yerk biology and how amazing it is for Yerks to be able to experience sight when in a host body, which has me feeling a lot of complicated disability feelings. More on that later. There's also a mention of the Andalites blockading the Yerk homeworld. Uh, the leopard attacks, Marco shows up, Cassie tries to hide that Karen is a controller, but fails. Karen's a little girl. I think I forgot to say that before. Uh, Marco says they should kill her, and Cassie says they need to ask the real human Karen to ensure that Karen is really the one talking. Cassie lets Karen's Yerk into her brain to control her instead. The Yerk turns out to be named Aftran. And Cassie finds out that Aftran took this job, being inside of Karen's brain, to spy on Karen's banker dad because she doesn't want to kill people anymore, much like Cassie. However, Aftran's brother stayed on as security, and he was the one in the hork that Cassie killed earlier, which was already mentioned, but it's kind of skipped over then. What, what a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Cassie and Aftran talk about peace, and Aftran finally says that if Cassie really wants her to give up her host body permanently, Cassie needs to understand what it's like and what Aftran would be giving up. So she tells Cassie to morph a caterpillar and get stuck. Cassie does. Uh, the narration switches to Jake on his way to try and sort out this whole mess. The Animorphs get to Cassie, Karen, and Aftran too late, uh, and Cassie is now a caterpillar nothlet. Aftran says she didn't mean for Cassie to get stuck, but there was no way to communicate and tell her to turn back, which is... A ridiculously stupid oversight on Aftran's part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think she thought she would actually go through with it, but yeah. Yeah, I guess she didn't plan ahead. Rachel wants to kill Aftran, but the others are less sure, so Jake tells them that they all have to decide for themselves. Uh, they all, like, separately, one by one, decide to leave uh, Karen... <clears throat> Karen and Aftran B so as not to invalidate Cassie's decision and sacrifice. They take Caterpillar Cassie with them and a couple days later she comes out of her cocoon and turns into a butterfly. It turns out that this resets her Nothlet clock and makes her able to morph into a human again. Right. Um, and the narration <laughs> switches back to Cassie who encounters Karen in the mall. Karen tells her that Aftran did indeed go back to the pool and is no longer in Karen's head. That's everything. Uh, it took me, a, like, an hour to write that because it kept coming out too long. Gosh, even still, there's so much. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot here. Uh -huh. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that. <laughs> we can unpack a small part, the part that we're best <laughs> educated to unpack. I feel like the part that's the most important to unpack here is that big conversation about the morality of war and Aftran's sort of appeal to nature regarding the way that the Yerks are and the mm -hmm. justification for what they do. Yeah, one of my notes that I took for our class discussion was just the word veganism with three question marks. <laughs> I mean, that is part of it. Like, the, the, the core of Aftran's argument is that, like, it's in your nature to kill and eat other animals, but, like, I mean... To some degree, like, we are biologically omnivores, but, like, when we realized that we didn't need to do that to survive, a bunch of us quit in a massive social movement, and now global meat consumption is down almost 60% from where it was when this journal was written, you know? I've, I've done I've done a lot of research for this one. Mm -hmm. um, like, we don't... 
That appeal to nature doesn't really fly because we've been able to accommodate for the idea that we can be more generous and harmonious with other species. Like, permission to go off. <laughs> permission granted. Before you do go off, meat is a very rich source of a lot of stuff we need and it's only because of like modern technology and better food access that we are able to opt out mostly of eating meat so mm -hmm. like it was not just a social decision and i'm sure you're yeah that, so it is well, also i mean yeah i it wouldn't was... say i'm not sure if it's necessarily our natural state but it is but the point Something... is that a lot of us, the point is that a ton of people made the conscious decision based on the information that we have and based on the technology that we have to stop eating food that requires things to die, uh, or at least requires, you know, you, you can't, nothing's purely, there's no pure sort of like harm elimination stuff. It's all harm reduction, but still like. Um, that's not actually true because have you heard of Schmeet? That's the the the, uh, the hydroponic meat, right? Yeah. Like, like that's what I'm saying in terms of we have the technology, right? Like we've had we've had the technology for a long time. It's just that like yeah. vegetarianism and veganism just kind of became more popular in the century in between here and now because well, again we had the, we had the technology was... and we had it was more accessible. There's like an industry. I mean, there's an industry for like vegan foods, but there's also an existing industry for meat production and livestock. So. I don't think that those institutions wanted to just, you know, dissolve themselves because... I mean, they didn't. It required massive social movement on, yeah. like, on the part of, like, everybody to get mm -hmm. that to happen. And I mean, there are still plenty of people who do eat quite a lot of meat, like, on par with what people in this era were eating. Like, people who need to, like, for medical reasons, eat a lot, or people for whom, like, that's um, a super important part of their culture and stuff like that, mm -hmm. so... I, 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 you're, you're correct. I think we're, we're getting away from the point that I'm trying to make here, which is that, like, Aftran's sort of point about the fact that Yerks are parasites and that that's their natural mode and who are you to judge, like, on some level makes sense. Like, we do need to think about the fact that we're dealing with fundamentally non-human intelligences who require us to reframe our morality and our sense of ethics. Within this context here, I feel like Aftran still doesn't have a leg to stand on because, like, human beings are incredibly adaptable. Well, of course and she have... doesn't have any legs. She's a year. Okay, okay. <laughs> Not unless she gets a host body and then she has legs to stand on. That's true. That's her whole argument. <laughs> so Aftran makes the point that, like, you all need to be aware that we are parasites and that that is our natural mode of life and therefore that which is repugnant to you is normal to us. I think that's a very valid point. Which is, like, valid, but the thing is that, like, Consciousness and cognitive liberty are things that are pretty important to both humanity and, like, every other sapient species in the galaxy, except for the taxons. Well, well. The fact that the Yerks maintain that they are slaves to their natures doesn't really fly with me, given the flexibility of human beings and Andalites and of other intelligent species. Like, it seems to me like the Yerks are being inflexible, or at least after its point, is born from a place of inflexibility. I do feel like Aftran, part of her problem is a bit of like a lack of imagination, but I think in some ways her her lack of imagination is sort of, mm, I don't want to say stunted, but like her, her imagination is limited because of the sort of 
forces of these two empires fighting it out. Because Afrin talks at one point about how she really wishes there was a middle ground between either being, you know, under the hoof of the Andalites, trapped, blockaded on the Yerkhome planet, or constant war as a member of the Yerk Empire. Like, she really wishes there was a middle ground. And Wait, is that in the text? Wait, what? what's in the text? The blockade thing. Uh, yeah, it's right at the end of chapter 14. It's, um, I don't hate you. She ignored me. She was talking for herself now. What choice do we have? Back to the Yerk pools? Back to our home planet with Andalite dome ships in orbit above us, waiting for one of us to try and rise from the sludge, then blow us apart? Leave the universe to the almighty Andalites and the species they happen to like? Is that a war so crime? She, does, she doesn't say the word blockade, but... Gotcha, Is that a war crime? Gotcha. <laughs> I wasn't saying... I did. The words war crime did not pass my lips. Everything I know about blockades and how to break them, I learned from the Star Wars movies. I don't know what that means, but okay. Okay, let's move um, on. Anyways, so, that, so anyway, my point I is, my point a, is, a, a misprint or something. Cause, you know. Weird. Anyway, back to my point. Part of the problem is because Aftran has been stuck in this war for so long, and because those two things are framed as the only options, even though she is thinking, you know, I wish there was a middle ground. She's not really thinking about like all the possibilities of a middle ground. Like, you know, we've talked before about using android bodies and. Of yeah, because I know like, that she were working on artificial brain technology mm-hmm, for their Yerks yeah. later, like, historically, later down the yeah, line. Yeah, a little after the events of these books. And, like, for example, the Andalites have so much technology that could be super useful, too, instead of, you know, Ciro absolutely gave the Yerks the wrong piece of Andalite technology. He didn't need to give them space travel, he just needed to give them the ability to morph. We know they don't even need to have to, like be able to keep the morphing ability, they would still be happy as nothlets of various species. That's all Ciro had to do. He picked the wrong technology. And so... But wasn't that already a law at that point? Like... He already broke the law. He might as well really break the law. I mean, that is true. Go big or go home. Yeah. In for a penny, in for a pound. In for a genocidal parasitic species, in for finding a way to coexist with them, baby. Did, did the technology exist at the time? Zero I think was like so. Uh, pretty. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Because well, like, like the, I think it's sort of the law against the law that like made Elfangor techn- technically be in trouble for sharing morphing technology, even though he was dead, so it didn't matter. Was also like I think it was like the law of Zero's kindness. Yeah. So. Even if, okay, so even if that was, like, not available then, I don't know about the history of morphine technology, just give it to them later. Just say, hey, guys, we know you're fighting because you want bodies. Here's a way you can have bodies. Ta-da. Okay, so two things there. One, you can't really blame Aftran for not being able to sort of conceptualize that idea. Because oh, no, he- I don't believe her. I, I don't. I don't blame her at all. I don't think that that's something that she could possibly conceive of, like, working with the Andalites. I don't think that she yeah. can conceive of a universe in which they provide any help to the Yerks whatsoever. But I think that's more the Andalites' fault than the Yerks. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, regardless, it doesn't have as much bearing on the conversation that is happening in this book. This is definitely kind of like a nature versus nurture thing. Like, how much of the Yerks being the, quote, bad guys is just because they're raised to think of, like, parasitism as the only way to survive, and they're raised in this super competitive empire. If they had, you know, that huge part of their biology sort of 
voluntarily altered so that they didn't necessarily have to parasitize people and they became nothlets or kept the ability to morph like you know mm-hmm. which leads me to my second point wait <laughs> i have mm-hmm. to say before you do okay counterspell <laughs> i can't believe i've been countered <laughs> uh I, I just want to clarify that that's not my perception of yurks i think that that's the andalite argument for why even if zero had the escafil device he might not have given it away he wanted the yurks to go out and do create stuff but not but you know with jed bodies and not yeah. like any right. other bodies whereas like and the andalites do only see the morphing technology as a weapon so and as an andalite weapon it's just for them yeah exactly so i'm not surprised that it like doesn't even cross Sierra's mind. They don't see it entirely as a weapon because Axe mentions that there are people who are like morphing artists. I forget the name, but it's the thing that Cassie oh, yeah, is as well. Estrines. She's such a graceful morpher. Estrines, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true, actually. That's a good point. But they see it as Andalite exclusive and also with a lot of potential for destructivity. Yeah. Which is fair. Yeah, the fact that they just give it to everyone. I mean, like, we, most we read the one where Jake turns into a rhino and just uh, goes ham, so okay so wait i have another point here that relates to after and sort of appeal to cassie and her appeal to the right of yurks to behave the way that they do and to live the way that they live and to and to parasitize the way that they parasitize relies upon these two things relies upon the idea that they that yurks are slaves to their nature and that this is just the way that they are and that they are not they're not capable of changing that which like again nah, i don't really that doesn't really apply to me um and then the other thing that she brings up is the the sort of yurkish right to conquest the mm. right to expand yeah that was pretty bad that's which is fascism. <laughs> there's not nobody has a right to expand like that's not a thing um, Except for the universe. Well, the universe expands whether or not we want it to, so I think that's a boot point. But, like, so basically what what I'm coming to is outside of self-preservation, which, like, granted, we can all kind of relate to to some degree, and, like, a sort of short-sighted cleaving to one's sort of natural proclivities, what do the Yerks find important that isn't conquest? I don't know any Yerks, so I can't, I don't know how intelligent a conversation I can have in the theoretical space but i can see a yurk having the argument of why do we need to like the only solution for our existence is to be something else and not like have there be some sort of other solution for my existence as a yurk because that is not inherently wrong you don't need to Um, be anyone else you just need to learn to love yourself sweaty (laughs) <laughs> right like that's actually related to a point i want to make later if a yurk is going to try to come at this from another come at like living and seeing from another angle aside from parasitism is the only choice to become a nothlet or if they just want to have some kind of peace with their natural bodies to remain as a yurk in a yurk pool is that the dichotomy that we have to set up for them i Hmm. I don't know. I mean, nowadays there are a lot more options, but I feel like back then it felt like there kind of were no options. Well, right. And I mean, those are those resources aren't accessible. So 
in response to that, in, er, so, um, so I think that from Aftran's perspective, in the, the events of this book, right, that is the dichotomy that Aftran is setting up. But, like, I did, <laughs> after we finished this, I did do some research into Yurk alternative social movements that occurred sort of in the in-between points here. Uh, the Symbiosis Initiative, uh, Slakish Aftran, uh, The Caring, a bunch of organizations designed by Yurks to try to find an alternative lifestyle. Like, this movement really picked up traction uh, and really sort of got going after the events of this book. And, like, the, the Yurk presence inside their culture became a, a force with some real momentum sort of in this in this period of time. And, like, ultimately a lot of the stuff that they ended up doing was kind of obviated by the, the conclusion of this whole conflict. But, like, there were people... Within, like, a couple of years, within the, like, decade or two after this, there were a lot of huge Yurk social movements trying yeah. to find a better solution. So the possibility for that, that idea that you've brought up, that they could figure out something else, absolutely does exist. It absolutely did exist. And there's some, actually some fascinating history, and I'm going to be writing a paper for extra credit to That's submit to Bradley That's great. Honestly, it, that makes me, like, really... Uh, I'm just so relieved to hear that, because I was also going to argue that the dialogue that's happening here is like sort of inherently arguing for like a negative worldview of the way that like the universe functions it's like why do the yurks even exist and have intelligence and what how can they be sentient if their if their only existence can be either parasitism or like you know sightless wormhood <laughs> yeah and, like, on the one hand, to some degree, I think that there is a kernel of truth to that idea that we as humans are relatively limited in our ability to empathize with other species who don't, like, operate biologically the same way that we do, such that, like, Cassie has an inherent disgust towards the idea of parasites and parasitism, mm -hmm. because it's just not how human beings function, right? And she's probably pretty used to giving the animals their heartworm meds and stuff like that. Right, so exactly. Just... There is something behind the idea that Yurks have this nature that they that is just part of them, that we as humans could, could probably be a little bit more compassionate about. Yeah, I just want to read a line from the book. It, this is a, a dialogue between um, Cassie and Karen. We're not pigs, I said. Oh, yes, you are, she said, her face distorted and twisted with contempt. That's all you are to us. Oink, oink. That line. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> after Ed refers to humanity as, quote, our meat. At one point later after that, it's pretty grim. It's pretty grim. That's the kind of inflexibility that I'm talking about, where the Yerks can't recognize that every other species in the galaxy really values sort of, like, cognitive liberty and, like, autonomy. Well, but kind of um, a similar argument to what you just made about how Cassie really struggles to empathize with Aftran because she finds Aftran's mindset so inherently alien. Maybe Aftran is having the same problem about, like, mental autonomy, which doesn't mm. necessarily make a good argument for, like, how good of a person Aftran is. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, maybe it's... For in for her in York society, especially back then before all those social movements, the idea of like mental autonomy was so low on their list of like things you should have a right to that it's just like incredibly weird to her that other people care about it so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Ultimately, I think that we've run into two different things here in terms of what Aftred is telling us. We've run into the actual sort of like historical reality of the situation in that there are actually a bunch of Yurks who think that Yurkish conquest and the entire sort of concept of enslaving other species by way of brain stuff is like kind of amoral and immoral specifically and like that they shouldn't do it. We have that and we do have Aftred's sort of like mixed feelings on that but we also have to consider that Aftred's got a pretty narrow worldview and dare I say it is being influenced by the neural pathways of their host a literal child. Yeah, I think we've seen that before with other controllers, is that the controllers do have some small influence over their Yerks. Like, for example, with Eva being able to push through and warn Marco's dad mm, about not yeah. taking military contracts, and Chapman being able to fight off his Yerk briefly because he cares about Melissa. Mm. Additionally, um, also, just like, I think we talked about this as well, is that the Yerks change over time according to the host body that they're in. Hmm. Same I don't more. know if they do, so I'm just not saying anything like, oh, okay, if she <laughs> I says I don't know so. that they do. I'm just arguing for that. I mean, we have never met a Yerk who's as megalomaniacal as Visser 3 is. Yeah. So it is entirely possible that that's not entirely, like, that's that's not just one, that like... good, good Andalite influence, baby. I was going to say, that's maybe not just one Yerk who's, like, swiveling around in the office chair with a white cat <laughs> in the lap. Like, that could be a little bit of a... Uh, that could be a little Valoran. bit of a host body, yeah. Um, Perhaps. Uh, I don't know that much about Aloran as like. It's entirely possible that they could magnify each other, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about Aloran specifically, but just you know, extrapolating from a lot of the other Andalites we've seen thus far in these journals, like totally reasonable that a mix of like Andalite superiority and Yerk superiority mixed with a Yerk who was already kind of ambitious and anime villain-esque could totally produce Visser 3. Yeah. This was quite a while ago that you said this, Parker, but I didn't say anything then because I didn't want to interrupt you, but... um. Yeah, sorry, I talked a lot. Uh, me too. Don't even. I still have an entire other rant to go on about this journal. Don't get me started. Well, do get me started. Um, is that I think part of the problem with Yerk social movements, because you're right, there totally were Yerk social movements already happening at this time. Mm -hmm. But I think that a big part of the problem is that, and this happens with like human social movements, especially like leftist ones, especially organizing on like college campuses and stuff is that so many movements are so disconnected from each other and don't even know that the other groups exist mm -hmm. or like you know people if it's at college people graduate and and age out or whatever um and so i think that was a big problem with the yerks like you can communicate with the yerks in your pool but you're not necessarily communicating with other yerks and so i think that's part probably part of the problem is that information that other people were also having similar thoughts and were organizing around this kind of stuff may not have been available to Aftran if it wasn't happening, like, in her pool. Yeah, that's a great point. Especially with, like, the nature of the idea behind the organization is seditious to its core. Like, it's difficult to sort of, like, get that stuff out there. Um, so, yeah, that makes perfect sense. These aren't, like, natural, naturally occurring conditions for these philosophies to arise. This is an empire. This mm. is something that intentionally wants to beat down on its lowest members and make them think that there's no other way absolutely yeah absolutely that's a really critical point here we get into the the council of 13 later but <laughs> uh is it time for me to go off about something else now, or are we still in the middle of that conversation? I think I think that that's like I feel like it's really hard to have this discussion 
in any kind of entirety as humans. Like, I think we're doing our best to facilitate a good amount of theoretical with also accounting for uh, the vast amount of different kinds of lived experiences. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think we've come at it from a good historical angle. So I'm Yeah, I mean, all we can really do is educate ourselves on the sort of mm -hmm. depth and breadth of Yerkish thought. But I agree, there is probably some limitation there, but we, we can only do as much as we can, so. Can I go off about disability <laughs> justice? Fire away. Okay. I have a lot of complicated and confusing disability feelings about this journal, and I don't know what to do with them. Because being disabled, physically disabled myself, I can't help but read this through a lens of like disability justice and disability studies and mm -hmm. through like models of disability um, and models of how we think about disability while also wondering if disability theory is even relevant at all to this conversation. Although just in general, I wish every single one of these people would stop dissing blind people so much. It's really annoying. Yeah, it sucks. I'm not yeah. blind, so I can't claim to know what it's like, but I know plenty of blind people who are, like, chill and get around and do stuff, and it's... I'm sure that many aspects of it can be really difficult because, you know, we live in a society, but it, I don't think it's quite as dire as literally everyone in these journals makes it sound. Yeah, especially with that they take a moment after, like viewing something especially beautiful, like, life without it would... Terrible. Mean. And this is Aftran's experience specifically, like, yeah. she has been a blind person and also yeah. has seen and is, like, she just wants not to have that experience again. That's a good point. And I think also it reflects the kind of helplessness she feels as a yerk. In the, yeah, in and the I, I totally get that, like, why not be able to experience this thing if you can but mm -hmm. so that that's part of what's really making me try to decide like if a disability studies reading of this is even relevant or not because mm -hmm. on one hand yerks are not disabled generally speaking obviously i'm sure there are disabled yerks but yerks as a whole are not disabled because being a slug-like blind creature is just how they are and it's their natural state if after it's going to make it appeal to nature then like that's, there you go yeah, exactly. But then also, I can't help but feel that so many of my experiences resonate so strongly with a lot of the um, stuff that Afrin talks about. And I, I want to be clear that I'm I'm not trolling necessarily, but I am saying this like <laughs> facetiously. What but the like, heck does that mean? Can you? <laughs> you are. Can you? you aren't. Can you view? Host oh, bodies I hate this. Oh. as assistive tech. Um, um. <laughs> because it kind of feels like, in a weird way, Aftran views a host body as assistive technology, and I don't know how I feel about that. Because it really feels to me like there's. I don't even know. I took one disability studies class in my first semester of college, so that was like over a year ago, and then I have my lived experiences, and that's it. So I don't really know what I'm talking about. Bear that in mind. But I just, I, I, feel, I feel weird about this journal in a way that I can't quite put my overly bendy and unstable finger joints on. It's kind of like, like the, the Yerks 
are not actually disabled just by being Yerks, but I can see how it feels to them like they are disabled compared to like Andalites and humans. And it kind of it kind of makes me think of like, you know, is every species disabled in some way compared to other species who can do things that they can't? But then some of the is does it only apply if those traits are desirable or what if they're under I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about this, but I Let's, feel something you know about it. I actually it. think that this is this is a conversation that we can have using even just the text. So like obviously okay, so there's it's a myth that there's only five senses, but for yeah. the you know, for this conversation we're just gonna say that there's only five. So Andalites are down one sense. They don't have a sense of taste at all. Do they have a sense of smell? They, I, I think, think that they, they do. do have olfactory, okay. like, receptors. But they don't have a sense of taste. And even though those are pretty closely related, obviously, In actually... they are. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true, yeah. Well, it, it, you know, we, we can see that it has a clear effect on Aximili and other Andalites who morph into humans, that this new sense to them is so overwhelming. However, mm-hmm. like, I think it's just, it's the amount of necessity versus privilege that we place on these different, on, like, having these different senses in the first place. How crucial to any existence is taste? Well, I think that depends on the person. One thing that I've been really, really worried about um, right now is, you know, some people who catch the dripping, when they recover, they still have no sense of smell or taste. Mm-hmm. And I, because of some of my medications and because of some of my health problems, have a really hard time remembering to eat. Like, I love food. I just forget to eat. And then also sometimes because I'm, like, really sick to my stomach, even though I know I need to eat, food feels incredibly unappetizing. And those are the times when I try and eat something that's really, really delicious to really, like, encourage me to actually eat it. And mm-hmm. so, to me personally, losing my sense of taste would be really bad because it would become so much harder to, like, remember to eat and to get myself to eat even when I feel nauseated. I think it would reduce a lot of, a lot of um, at least human beings' capacity to self-regulate. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Is there a field for this? I think there's a field Probably. for this. I don't know what it is, but, like, comparative disability studies? It might just fall under disability studies in general. But like Xeno, but it's like there's like a there's like yeah. a cross species yeah. like there's just like a Xeno. Yeah, the class the class there. I took only focused on human disability studies. Just to complete this hypothetical, how like how important how necessary to one's existence do we consider taste? Um, we must also consider how, like that we are asking ourselves how important to one's existence do we consider sight? How necessary? I think part of the reason that we as a species consider sight to be much more important than taste is because we're such a visual species Mm -hmm. and so much of our world is so, so sight focused. Like, I mean, that's something I already was kind of peripherally aware of, but like knowing some blind people, there were definitely some things I could guess that they would have trouble with, but there were plenty of things that it didn't even occur to me that they would have trouble with because it's every little, and this is as another disabled person who also has trouble with like tons of little weird specific things, but it really are human society and Andalite society both are so focused on vision as like in many ways kind of the main sense you use to navigate the world that I think much like we've been talking about again and again, it's so hard for us as humans 
to even conceptualize of like a world that doesn't place that kind of an emphasis on sight, mm -hmm. even though we've made huge strides in accessibility since these uh, journals, the events of these journals happened, that it's, it's hard for me to really give a definitive answer on how important sight is. And that's why I'm kind of thinking about like different models of viewing disability and whether or not Yerkes like sort of fall under those or not. My thing is, I'm going to go so far as to say that we can't. I mean, I, I think that you're having a hard time sort of wrapping your head around those questions because I don't think that those questions are even relevant. I don't think they even exist because the Animorphs, more than any other human beings in history, have shown us that the idea of sight isn't real. The idea of, like, how important to bring that up. a creature is sight like, that's not even a relevant question because everything experiences, like, every species experiences sight mm -hmm. differently. And those answers are going to be completely different for various different species. So, like, how important is our concept? Like, we would have to frame it in terms of, like, how important is a human capability for sight? Or, like, a human-grade capability for sight to any given creature? And for some creatures, that's, like, hugely. And for some creatures, it's not at all. Yeah. So, like, the idea of the senses as these monoliths that are the same throughout the galaxy just doesn't... That's just that's just not real. We also... Yeah. I mean, this is our way of perceiving matter. Mm -hmm. But it, it tends to focus on that superficial aspect instead of um, other creatures' capacities of perceiving matter, which sort of get away from light and the color spectrum and focus more on the you know, actual literal aspects of matter itself, like the other more perceptible. Like heat and cold. Yeah, like heat, you know, the, the attributes of itself aside from just like what our photoreceptors are, are capable of reading from a distance. Like there is more here than just like, oh, I can see it and therefore it's real. Right. And as humans, we just might not be able to, like, there's only a certain degree to which our culture has prepared us for this kind of conversation in the first place. It's because we live in a culture of human exceptionalism. Yep. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I do want to get a little deeper in the disability theory weeds um, before we move on, because I do have sort of a, a thing I want to try and think about out loud at you two. Mm -hmm. Um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there are a lot of, this is something I learned in my like one class over a year ago, um, is that there are a lot of different models for how society looks at disability and like a lot, I can't remember all of them. And some of them have like ridiculously complicated names, which seems like a bad idea for like stuff about disabled people. Cause we can't remember ridiculous. So many of us can't remember ridiculously long, complicated names. You get to the end of a complicated name. I forgot the beginning part. It's have, the, in it's intentional no thoughts um well this is a lot of theory that is being come up with by like disabled people oh. um uh so it's it's somewhat more accessible um but at the time period that these journals take place i think the charity model was kind of a big one which kind of self-explanatory like disabled people should be an object of charity um, but I think two of the biggest ones for understanding, like, disability itself and how you should think about disability were the medical model and the social model. And I don't totally remember all of the details about them. Um, but, like, the medical model is, like, 
viewing disability as a thing to be fixed and a thing to be cured. And the social model is a model of thinking about disability as like a neutral thing, but that the reason being disabled kind of sucks is because, again, we live in a society. Um, and in our society, since it doesn't cater to disabled people, what actually would improve the lives of disabled people rather than curing us is making society accessible. Um, and one sort of funny way that the teacher put it that I thought explained really well, like how we think about what is and isn't um, an accommodation and an accessibility thing is that stairs are an accommodation for people who can't jump 10 feet straight up in the air. <laughs> they, I mean, it's true, but we don't think of them as an accommodation. Because Anyone who can't jump straight up 10 feet in the air is a sucker and is beneath <laughs> me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, literally beneath you. But so, um, so, but we don't think of stairs as an accommodation because most human beings can climb stairs. Whereas we think of like a ramp as an accommodation because relatively fewer human beings use wheelchairs or need a ramp. And so what's really interesting is that neither of these really covers the full spectrum of disability experience because the medical model totally ignores that like plenty of disabled people don't want to be cured and none of their distress and discomfort comes from being disabled it comes from society but the social model um i think there is more wiggle room in the social model but this is just like this was like one day of class so the teacher was just like yeah there's wiggle room and then moved on mm -hmm. uh, but the social model doesn't really allow for people who have like painful debilitating chronic illnesses that even if society was perfectly accessible would still suck to have like me um so i mean basically what i'm saying is like can someone enroll aftran in like a basic disability studies course and like tell her to stop being so like medical model and being like being a year because the thing that has to be cured and being you know blind and small and relatively physically helpless has to be cured and just yeah, like that's just such assistive a technology worldview. You're not the problem after and the world is the problem. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I still like I said, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just feel like there is a disability connection to be made here. I'm curious to know and I'm sure that you know, we get into this later, but I'm curious to know how old Aftran is, like, relative mm. to the York experience, mm. and if this is, like, a very well-informed opinion or something that's more maybe that, like, the equivalent of a human 12-year-old could... Yeah. Um, I think Cassie says multiple times that Aftran, like, seems relatively old, mm -hmm. but that might just be relatively old compared to, like, a 10-year-old body. Right. Yeah, Cassandra, like, oh, this is an incredibly rich vein of inquiry, I think, the disability angle. It almost seems like you could also write an extra credit paper for no. our class, and Absolutely maybe it would not. be really interesting to read. You would no. come away with a really cool paper. Look Absolutely how much not. extra no work you did. That's just because I really like this journal. I see. I'm just saying, if you write down your feelings, then the rest of us could be like, hey, yeah, my friend wrote that thing. I, like I mean, I've feelings. been to almost every single class discussion. I don't need extra credit. I mean, I, I, part of the reason I do keep showing up is because as much as I enjoy the conversations and they're like keeping me sane, I'm like, you know, maybe if I turn up to enough, I will get extra credit without doing anything more than like chatting with people I've become friends with. Yeah, just keep dropping hints and Mr. Leone. You hear that, Professor Leone? <laughs> yeah. And or TAs? Please tell Professor Leone if, if he's not listening. Uh, I have another question if we're, if we're good to move on. Okay. 
yeah, that's that's all that I had to say. So cool, cool. Um, so in the beginning of this journal, Cassie mentions Morphic and Tyrannosaurus Rex. I did not read about this happening. Why aren't we reading these <laughs> other books? I think because we already have so many to read that I think the professor was just like, we have to draw a line. Somewhere. She morphs and a Tyrannosaurus. What could be more important than that? Also, I don't think they're real. They're so non-essential. I know it seems crazy, but I honestly, to like the, to the story, to the part of history that we're exploring, they're not relevant. I just like dinosaurs. Anyway, uh, why are we inside these other books? I don't understand. Professor Leon's TAs. Okay, if there's one that we should read, please explain. It should be Visser. And cool. Oh, shouldn't it be, shouldn't that. it be the um, Elfengor riding through the desert in a yellow VW bug one? No, I'm just... <laughs> I just is. How do you okay from an accessibility standpoint? How do you configure a VW bug so it had to like drive it badly? <laughs> he he doesn't. He just stands in it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, seriously? He's not even in morph. He just stands you know, in it. Okay, so listen. You know those. You know those. Um little like plastic cars that we I, at least i had when i was a kid where you like pretend to drive it but you really just have your feet down on the ground under the car and you're just like kind of running <laughs> oh no that but elfangor and a yellow vw bug would top he's down galloping. Oh. <laughs> he's just galloping but like wearing the car on his leg <laughs> a freaking and like fallout train hat that's amazing oh my uh. God. well he had to bring use the car because that Lady is there. I forgot her name. Lauren? Wait. Yeah. Okay. No, who's talking about spoilers now? I just said that there's a lady in the car with him. I didn't say anything. Okay. The fact that you're saying it's spoilers is more spoiler than me saying <laughs> that there's a lady in a car with him as he drives a VW bug across the tracks in the desert. Anyways, moving on. If uh, if Elfangor <laughs> drove a VW bug across the desert and he wore su- like aviator sunglasses so he would look cool and also bugs wouldn't get in his eyes, would he wear the sunglasses like this or like this? <laughs> <laughs> How did this, of all things, become the recurring meme for our class discussions? It's very funny. I didn't even know about it at the start of the semester, but every time you bring it up, I'm just like, I should look at it. And then I finally checked it out, and I was like, If a dog wore pants, would he wear them like this or like this? Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, no, T Rex's different book, not actually as important as it sounds. Certainly not. No one uses fax machines, but call, you'll hear the noise. Statues left by ancient Greeks, the perfect cheeks of goddesses and boys. Piled in the closet, broken toys. Where were we? Does anyone else have any other notes they want to mention? Yes. I am good, so yeah, okay. let's hear it ourselves. Um, let me see. Are you over the mystery learn? Oh, um, we have to talk about race. That is incredibly important to not just this book, but all of the books. Let's go. Three white people. We're going to talk about race. <laughs> yeah. It's <Yes. That's> horrible. <laughs> so basically, I just feel like that there's an inextricable argument to be had about the relevance of the myths of white evolutionary psychology, <clears throat> like phrenology and like, and slavery and being not slavery and... Um, like a method of capitalism and power and hate and everything, but of it just being a peculiar institution that like white people and just so happened to do believed in the, yeah, there's that God made them differently and 
that it was just a fact about the world that they couldn't imagine differently that white people were made to be the masters. They're evolved to be parasites. Um, and like, what does that say about, uh, like I said before, like the cruelty of nature? And like, is that even like a real thing? Like, or, okay, let's, let's just start to break that down because I totally jumbled up my thoughts, but you understand what I'm saying, right? No. No. Okay, let's say from the perspective of a yerk, you, you believe that like there's parasites and host bodies and that's kind of it. Sure. And like there's biological factors that you feel you can identify using methods that that you can use to conclude your clearly messed up hypothesis in the first place. Like um, phrenology in the human Like example. phrenology. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. So Is medically like... medically justifying tyranny and oppression in imperialism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you're you're justifying it as like a scientific fact of life. Yeah. Is there any actual credence to anyone doing that, or is it just is it just a myth? Yeah, I mean that kind of ties into what I was talking about as well, which is like technically speaking, I don't think the Yerks really need host bodies, but I do really feel for them. But also, parasitizing people non consensually is bad. Yeah, clearly. Right. But I just think that like the the human history of this yeah. is an important inextricable part of our capacity to talk about it so like just as the yurks have this sort of idea or at least uh aftran sort of has this idea of the the right like the natural right of yurks to parasitize and to expand so too did humanity develop the ideas of social darwinism and white supremacy whereas within yurk culture you have these alternative social movements that were cropping up that are like hey maybe we could figure out a way to get some voluntary hosts maybe we can develop some other technology that allows us to experience things more fully without infringing upon the sort of liberty of other people to do the thing like so i would say in response to your question no it's not necessarily a natural foregone conclusion it's just an old mode of thought mm -hmm. based on like rigid inflexible thinking slash intentionally rigid inflexible thinking that reinforces a hierarchy absolutely it supports the institution of yeah. the empire in this situation as it has in human society yeah and i think co connecting these ideas that we're talking about and being like oh these yurks they're so backwards right i think connecting that back to the real qualities of human society over the years the painful echoes of which are still reverberating mm -hmm. i think is really <laughs> important and good and i'm happy that you did it because i don't yeah. think i would have made that connection yeah because it's like are we really any especially we as like white americans really mm -hmm. any better you know like is that why i'm able to feel compassion for aftran probably and that's kind mm -hmm. of messed up but i don't know yeah it's a very good point empathy with oppressors is never productive but i think questioning who is an oppressor and who is someone else that needs your help within yeah. an institution that seeks to cannibalize is a very valid question to ask and i think that's what you're getting at and it's like Aftran is just kind of another cog in the machine and she also wants things to change but then also she still is like ah you're just meat to us so it's like she's clearly still unlearning some stuff yeah i was gonna say we have to keep in mind as we are 
talking about Aftraya and Aftraya views on Yerk's supremacy and the natural right of Yerk's to parasitize, that, like, Aftraya is still in the nascent stages of realizing that parasitism is wrong and, like, well, not parasitism, but, like, specifically Yerk imperial parasitism is wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. non-consensual. She's still figuring this out, and, like, I don't know, we've been ragging on her all discussion. I don't know, I have not, I, I don't feel like I've been charitable to her, but, like, evol- eventually she does have these ideas, and she did sort of move forward with those ideas. Yeah, in some ways I kind of like Aftran, not, like, who she is in this journal necessarily, but who she, I know, becomes later. I like her because I think she pre- presents a compelling potential for argument and discussion. Something that occurred to me as you were talking, Parker, about how Aftran is at the beginning of unlearning this stuff is, you know what's a really interesting parallel to draw? Aftran and Axe. Go on. Say more. So Aftran and Axe both are members, relatively low-ranking, maybe young, we're not clear with Aftran, members of big nasty empires that do bad stuff. The types of bad stuff that they do are different and come from different places and different sort of motivations of imperialism and different ways of thinking, blah, blah, blah. But both of them are people who have been raised in those cultures and have been indoctrinated to believe that imperialism is good and doing imperialist stuff is good and haven't really for a while like broken out of that until exposed to excuse me like new experiences so with axe that's like being exposed to the humans and with aftran i think that's more generally like having a body especially karen but it sounds like it was happening even before she had karen's body because she um requested to be moved out of like a combatant position when she was using a Hork-Bajir body. I think that probably the experience of communicating with her Hork-Bajir host body and with Karen was kind of similar for Aftran to at least get her started. And then of course talking to Cassie kicks her kind of further along the road mm-hmm. to revolution. And so then both Aftran and Axe, as we see them now, are still you know, still learning, you know, acts still throughout the journals, speaking from experience, in moments of, like, stress or in moments of, like, encountering something new that he doesn't know how to handle with his new framework that he's working from falls back on the old one. And I think Aftran mm-hmm. is still kind of in the same position. I mean, because she doesn't, she doesn't trust Cassie off the bat and doesn't say, like, you don't have to know how I feel. I know that you get that it sucks for me to go back to being in a pool. She's like, no, you have to feel what I feel like exactly. Um, and so I, I don't know. I feel like that's not really a, a parallel that the text draws at all, but I feel like it is a parallel that's very much there. At the risk of sort of like falling again into that human exceptionalism, I feel like both of them have the capability to sort of question this big programming of theirs but the animorphs ended up kind of being the the lens that allowed both of them to look at that stuff critically the animorphs are not always the the sort of good guys of these stories and we as people are not the sort of like great moderators of the universe um but in this case uh we did have positive impacts on both of these very important members of their respective species yeah it's just it's so tempting to do that 
as well, where we're like, oh, okay, all these uh, other species just need to like talk to humans, and then their like single-mindedness will be changed, and we can have like we're the great bringers of yeah, smacks um, of white saviorism, honestly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Cassie's not capable of that. Of white saviorism? Yeah. This is a little bit of an exaggeration, but almost all of them reinforce the idea over and over that Cassie is a terrible liar. That she's just so incredibly bad at lying to the point where... Nice is neat. Like, to the point where, yeah, nice is neat and, like, Cindy Crawford and here's my eight-digit phone number. But she goes for it. And also, I am definitely not an Andalite. Right. But the thing is that, like, in this journal, she goes for it. And there are no illusions, I think. Like, I mean... Aftred recognizes right off the bat that, like, something sketchy's going on. But Cassie's just like, no, no, nothing sketchy's going on. Hey, we need to leave the woods. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that she actually is very, I think Cassie's just as good at lying as the other Animorphs because you have to think about the fact that she's lying every single day when she goes out into the world, you know? Ouch. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Aren't we all? They all do. It's like, I mean, it's an, it's part of being an Animorph and... She's lied to her parents. Imagine how hard that is. Oh, wait, I did that. Um. <laughs> I think that it's cool that in this particular instance, she capitalizes on something that the rest of the team has viewed as a weakness of hers, and it ends up saving the day. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I, I think, you know, the rest of the team would, like, scorn the very idea of empathizing with a Yerk and with taking that huge they leap do. of faith. And they kind of do. Um, but then I think at the end, that was actually, I was, like genuinely emotionally moved by that part very close to the end where even Rachel admits that she wants to like honor Cassie's sacrifice and she's not gonna kill after and I may have teared up a little anyway so who thinks that the butterfly thing is actually real because I don't I like I think that makes sense I don't know like there's not enough testing but I'm trying not to be skeptical as much. I've been very skeptical in the past. I don't feel like it's useful to... Have you been skeptical in the past? I've been very skeptical (laughs) about some stuff that happened to these journals in the past. I have convinced her to be skeptical about a few things. I mean, Erso, you brought it up. They've got the cube. Or maybe they don't have the cube. I mean, they don't have the cube at this point. But, like, theoretically, they get the cube. The cube? I feel like that's probably what does it. Do you guys want... Do you guys want an Animorph speech towel? And and what? An animorph speech towel? What does it have on it? It has animorphs on it. All of them? It has the word animorphs. <laughs> uh, Just the word yeah. animorphs. Okay, there's only a thousand winner winners for a chance to win. Please how yeah, old are below. your copies and of the books again, Erso? Animorph speech towel <laughs> sweeps. No purchase necessary. Okay, are you a boy or a girl? <laughs> I just realized as you said that. As you said that. Win your own beach towel. Actual design may vary. Okay, the actual design may vary, as it apparently says. I'm going to order one. Do you think I'll get it? (laughs) How? I repeat, how old are your copies of the books? Very old. It's here. Animorphs 2040 wall calendar. Illustrated by the Animorphs cover artist. Features a different Animorph each month. There's not enough. The hey, how could you tell it's stats? a different animorph? Yeah. Maybe it's just like a picture of a bee and then a picture of an antelope. And it it could be all just, it's probably all just Marco posing for the calendar. It's like, <laughs> this is the only way they're going to make a calendar of me, then so be it. 
mind-blowing cover that changes before your eyes. Wait, doesn't Marco have a bunch of, like, kind of racy calendars? Yeah, those are from much earlier, though. Does he? I think so. Okay, good. Yeah, those are those are from, like, his late teens. Like, right as soon as he turned 18, he immediately started posing for a bunch of racy calendars because, unfortunately, Marco was like that as a person. <sighs> Marco's masculinity corner. John C. All right, let's wrap this up. Okay. All right, this has been a marathon. Yeah, yeah some good talks. Uh, next week, we're going to read Animorphs, volume 20. Volume 20. Hey, Parker, mm-hmm. how do you feel about rats? Uh, I love rats. They're great. Next time, we're going to read Animorphs, volume 20, The Discovery. It's got Marco turning into a cobra on the cover. He looks very happy with himself. <laughs> how do you feel about... <laughs> How do you feel? About, <laughs> he doesn't look very happy. <laughs> how do you feel about little punk kids being like, "My dad works for the NSA," because <laughs> that's the whole next book. <laughs> I'm gonna go sleep for a long time because my caffeine is worn off. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I will talk to y'all later. Okay. Bye. Stay safe. Bye, everybody. Stay safe. Stay safe. The Morph Report is now on Patreon. We care a lot about accessibility, and we want to provide transcripts for our podcast. However, we are not able to keep up with the transcripts ourselves for much the same reason that we care about accessibility in the first place. To help offset these costs, we have introduced two preliminary tiers on Patreon at a $2 and $5 level, and we are working on more. If you're interested in supporting us so that we can transcribe our episodes and also so that we can pay for our hosting fees on Pinecast, please Thanks to Noelle Micarelli for the use of their songs Comic Book Girl, off the EP Field Notes from Another Place, and Complicated Spoon. You can find more of their music at noellemicarelli.bandcamp.com. The Morph Report is hosted by Marina Malucci, Scrivener Lamb, and Blythe. You could follow us on Twitter at MorphReport. If you have a question for the Podmorphs, tweet at us or send us an email, and we'll answer it on the show. Our email is themorphreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. like in a weird um, way after and views a host body as assistive technology and i don't know how i feel about that this is like okay out of character this is like that meme where it's like <laughs> that lady and like the dude who looks all withered it's like <laughs> <laughs> well, how is this that meme time to be assistive tech again honey <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> yes, sweetie. <laughs> no! <laughs> no! <laughs> That's exactly what you're saying. <laughs> uh...